Hello everyone, it's June 14th, 2022. This week we got Cargo Dragons leaking hypergolfs, Ingenuity's getting cold and dusty, and Astra just had an upper stage anomaly. It's been a busy and not great week in spaceflight. Space is hard, and that's actually what I love about it, so let's get into it and lift off. Welcome to episode 363 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, Spin Launch, um, I, somebody, Chris in our chat, I believe, posted a cool pick of a Spin Launch vehicle. A Spin Launch hmm. launch vehicle. I guess if you had to design something that's going to withstand tens of thousands of Gs, this is how you do it. I, like, I actually did think about like that it would look something like this. Like, I don't know, you know, like any details. But, but basically, you have a rocket with components that are... Uh, snugly embedded in something that keeps them in place. So there's no gaps, um, which is not surprising since uh, things might start to jostle around once you hit, I don't know, a thousand Gs or so. Yeah, the, the ordering of everything is so weird and different because of the fact that they eat something as <laughs> the, the zeroth stage. So it's kind of like, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the entire fairing, like the fairing right. has fins on it and the fairing is like, yeah, like a, a guitar case where it, all the, yeah. the upper stages and the payload are nestled in the spot like you're talking about. It's just such a it's a unique design because it's a very unique <laughs> type of launch. Yeah. So this is a question that, yeah, I guess it's called a fairing. Um, I'm not sure. But when does that come apart? Because it looks like, obviously, in order right. to deploy the second stage, uh, that's going to have to come apart. But obviously, once it's free of the launch tower or whatever you call it it's not, oh, yeah. not a tower the slingshot the merry-go-round once that happens and you are clearly out of the atmosphere then obviously you don't need to worry about any aerodynamics and you don't need to worry about the g-loads because you know you like you've already been flung so i guess you can kind of like separate it. i guess it's more like a sabot in fact i think somebody used that term oh yeah leon in the chat just kind of yeah point that out yeah so yeah it's more of a it's not so much a rocket body as much as it is a sabot but um then that makes me wonder looking at the components here and this obviously is just a rendering who knows what it's actually going to look like but how is it going to fare after that because the second stage doesn't or the both the first and second stage they look they don't look like they have much structural integrity they're space optimized right i mean it's it's got to be above the bulk of the atmosphere just for for this design um, I know that their tests that they did so far, I think they said it was at like 20% speed and they got up like tens of thousands of feet. So it seems pretty reasonable once they're doing a, you know, they're a hundred percent power that the Sabo can just sail on until it gets into the upper atmosphere. And then when it separates, you know, the air is so tenuous that, that it's okay to, to have such a an upper stage looking upper stage once they're at full yeet exactly chris <laughs> um it it really is bizarre i mean like it, it's like nothing we've ever seen uh before and you know we haven't actually seen this fly yet but it's so much closer to production like this is the closest to reality that anything this weird has gotten and and it's, it's what's really crazy is that this this definitely is weirder than uh balloon launched rockets to me like <laughs> oh yeah man i i don't know <laughs> balloons <laughs> balloons make sense cuz you you know that we we do high altitude balloons all the time it's just a matter of of dropping a rocket off of them and and having to overcome the issue of starting from a standstill this thing man like uh, i don't know lots and lots of doubt i'm still not convinced that they can release this thing 
<laughs> without tearing the thing apart. But they, you know, if they've gotten this far, I'm sure they've got you know pretty good beat on it. A cargo dragon leak. So we have a leak aboard a cargo dragon, obviously not a crew one. So, you know, this isn't going to affect astronauts, but this is uh, the CRS-25, which was delayed from June 10th, which was a couple of days ago. And they have a new targeted launch date of June 28th. Yeah, so what was this? So apparently this is a monomethyl hydrazine leak. It was somewhere in the Draco thruster system, and that's about as much as we know. Um, and I guess at the time that was as much as NASA knew. And so they said that they didn't have a firm new launch date, but I did find a separate article that says that it is now targeting June 28th. So I guess from that, we can infer that they figured out what the problem was and that they are fixing it. So so this is the dragon that's going to fly for CRS-25. Right. Is there a cargo dragon on orbit right now? But either way, it's not. There's a crew dragon on orbit right now, but... Yeah, okay. there's no... Okay. Yes, I think there's a Cygnus. I mean, I guess that, that would be worse. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many cargo and crew dragons are there there's what three crew dragons right well four operational i think okay four operational then one last one being uh built i thought it was just three i can't remember but i don't know how many cargo ones there are um cargo dragons there's uh two active ones and a third under construction and there yeah there's the fleet of four crew dragons and remember the news that they said that they're not going to bother building anymore so this cargo dragon is actually C2OH that's i guess its designation i don't think that the cargo ones have names right because i tried to find it and i couldn't find any name for this i know the crew dragon do but uh yeah no 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 it's they just have a serial number which is kind of fun cuz they're you know they're a Mack truck evidently they gave uh, the first prototype the name dragonfly well right cuz that was the <laughs> right that that was the one they used for the hover tests. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, so this is C208, and it flew on two previous missions, CRS-21 and 23. So this is just going to be its third flight. Yeah, like you said, there are a couple other cargo dragons, but yeah, I mean, there's not much else to say, really. Uh, but I just wanted to like mention this because it's kind of interesting. But after just a couple flights, they have a apparent leak. Because again, we don't know. So like maybe it's possible that the, maybe the, this wasn't a leak. Maybe the detection was faulty in some way, or false detection, maybe a false positive or something like like that. I kind of doubt it because that would be a very specific thing to go wrong. Yeah. But, uh, and it would be a pretty easy thing to confirm or disconfirm. So yeah, what they did was they just offloaded uh, the hydrazine and I guess they're currently repairing it. It doesn't seem like a big deal. There is the other story, I guess, of the what the next Crew Dragon is going to have a new heat shield, right? Oh, cool. So we're seeing a few repairs that are happening. And we're getting an idea, I guess, of how many times you can launch a Crew or Cargo Dragon before it needs some kind of servicing. I mean, I always think that that kind of stuff is interesting just because uh, it's just very cool to characterize um, how reusable something actually is. Uh, right. That's always been fascinating. And uh, so I guess the heat shield, or was it, maybe it wasn't the, it's not the next launching crew dragon, it's the one that just came back. I think the story is that they had determined that it uh, probably needs to be replaced, but that the astronauts were never in any danger. Um, or maybe mm. I'm thinking it's one that's coming up. Well, yeah, it is worth pointing out, right? So so maybe you're thinking there, there was a, um, a story that turned out to be untrue that was circulating on social media specifically about the return the most recent returning crew dragon and uh having a hypergolic leak into the heat shield or something oh uh, okay That'd be nasty. and that, that yeah yeah there was one source that reported it and nasa put out a statement saying that that was inaccurate i think i had heard that as well mm. yeah 
But yes, yeah, so that's just an inaccurate statement, kind of like a rumor, or maybe somebody just misunderstood. Could have gotten, yeah, I, I, I think they had a bad source, is, mm -hmm. is what it sounds like. Yeah, so apparently it's the upcoming uh, flight to station, uh, which will be in September uh, for the crew flight, and that's going to have a new heat shield. Yeah, and apparently it's because a composite substrate failed in acceptance testing due to a manufacturing defect. So this is actually more of a manufacturing problem, not so much like wear and tear on the heat shield then. It's just a manufacturing issue. So I, I kind of consider that something different. Oh, that is That's kind of interesting. Yeah. And there's a little news recently about Crew-5 that uh, the the fourth uh, uh, crew member mission, who would be uh, MS-2 is uh, Anna Kakina from Roscosmos and that there was uh, some recent talk that, yeah, no, it's okay. She will be able to fly and any oh, kind of... Reports to the contrary, hopefully, were not true. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that NASA was like lobbying to get her on board, right? Right, right. Was the problem Russia? Yeah, NASA has always been like, we're fine. Like ISS is apolitical. Like it's one of the few truly apolitical things until fits were thrown <laughs> over in Russia recently. But like, yeah, I, I, I as far as I know, it's Roscosmos threatening to not fly, not NASA saying you can't fly. I don't know. It, it it seems like there's one man in particular who <laughs> uh, throws these fits and says mm -hmm. these things. Um, mm -hmm. And so even though he might be the head of Roscosmos, I kind of feel like I just don't believe him <laughs> right. whenever he says anything. <laughs> yeah. Just want to make that distinction, I feel like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought it might be worth mentioning, too, that um, this is kind of complementary to what happened to C-204, the, the, uh, the, the crew dragon. That was destroyed uh, on the pad, uh, not on the pad, but during testing in 2019. And so, in that case, that was uh, nitrogen tetroxide and a super Draco causing a failure. And so, this was, in this case, just uh, some MMH vapor being found in a Draco um, right. area where it should be. I forgot to mention that since this is a cargo dragon, there are no super Dracos. They don't need them because, uh, you know, that's the launch escape system and you don't yeah. need one. That particular problem in 2019, as they found out, was a slug of hydrazine that got slammed into a titanium uh, check valve or something, and that caused ignition, and the whole thing blew up spectacularly. Yep. Yeah, this is something different. This is just a regular Draco thruster, um, much, mm -hmm. much lower thrust. Yeah. All right, so yeah, that was just a quick little story. Let's translate on over to something a little bit meteor um, ingenuity and uh, what's going on there. So what's happening on Mars? So this is a, it's in the midst of a Martian winter, and so it's having some issues uh, keeping warm, huh? Yeah, so the little helicopter is still chugging along well after its uh, original slate of demo flights and the martian winter in particular the fact that it gets dustier during the winter and the days right are shorter it's kind of the definition of what makes winter winter and so uh when ingenuity only has so much power uh that it can draw after it charges using the solar panels sitting on the very top of the, sp uh, the vehicle um so it doesn't have enough power to keep the heaters on through the nights so they're basically just shutting it down and it's just bracing for the cold and so that could be Pretty tough on the electronics, both in terms of just reaching that temperature, but then also mm -hmm. going through the big fluctuations, you know, during the, you know, the relative warmth of the day and direct sunlight and then going through the, the cold, this cold of uh, the depths of the night. It looks like uh, a victim has been claimed, a piece of hardware on Ingenuity, and in particular, the inclinometer has stopped working. Basically, Ingenuity, right? I mean, it's it's sitting at Mars, so it has to fly itself, essentially. The crew, or the People at Mission Control can 
program some things in there, but ultimately it has to be capable of some level of autonomous flight. And so its navigation is very, very important, what it's able to do. For example, it's got restrictions as to, uh, like when it flies, it needs to land uh, relatively on relatively flat surfaces. At least it was designed for less than 15 degrees uh, to be inclined when it lands. To give you an idea of kind of what it's like when it takes off, uh, it basically initially thrusts at 20% power uh, without much control. And then after uh, uh, 0.4 seconds, or when it's typically five centimeters off the ground, then it gets full control and wants to orient itself. So even if it was on a slight incline, it goes and corrects itself, you know, half a second later. Now, the way it does that is using this inclinometer, which is just one of the four components of its uh, full navigation suite. Because, right, remember, this is a spacecraft built with a lot of uh, commercial off-the-shelf COTS parts um, and designed to be lightweight and relatively inexpensive. And so the the, the suite of instruments uh, has at its heart uh, an IMU, uh, which is a uh, Bosch SensorTech BMI-160. Uh, which you can just find uh, available and purchase yourself. <laughs> it has a laser rangefinder, which is a Garmin LiDAR Lite V3, which uh, retails for $129.99, $129.99. And so uh, that one, uh, the website didn't actually give a quote. So, so you <laughs> can kinda, go get your own. Yeah, that, that's kind of cool that you put the price in there just in case you want to pick one up. Thanks. Yeah, I, I thought that'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. And so the laser rangefinder, right, is for basically tech telling the you know, the altitude of the, of the of ingenuity as it uh, hovers and flies around. It also has a downward-facing uh, navigation camera, uh, an Omnivision uh, 640 by 480 uh, one, which uh, basically is looking at the ground in grayscale and keeping an eye out on, uh, you know, features and things like that that it uses as part of its uh, its navigation software. And then finally, the inclinometer itself is the fourth component. And it's uh, from a company uh, which looks like, uh, when, when you write it in English, it looks like Murata or something like that. M-U and then capital R-A-T-A. But um, it's actually a Japanese company and it's uh, Murata, which is not Mu. And so uh, it's more like Murata or if you want to anglicize it, I guess, Murata. Mm -hmm. So in any event, uh, it's it's a uh, an inclinometer, an SCA100T-DO2. Uh, it's actually planned to be discontinued, according to the company's website. But it's, you know, it's a small little, you know, chip, essentially, a 12-pin chip that you stick on there. And it has uh, two accelerometers in there that basically just try to find out where your gravity vector is, right? Which direction is down. And so then, you know, when... Uh, like I mentioned how uh, Ingenuity flies, after it goes and thrusts to basically get off the ground nice and carefully, it still doesn't have its full, you know, six degree of freedom uh, control, but based on the inclinometer, it can tell uh, which direction is down and then kind of pivot over to correct for that. This The, the rest of the nav suite, the IMU, the laser rangefinder, the nav camera, it runs on software, as you can imagine. And that software needs a an accurate initial condition before it actually gets off the ground that it gets from the inclinometer. And then once it's airborne, the IMUs gives the state of the vehicle and keep it in level flight, right? You don't want it to be unlevel, um, unless I guess it's trying to move, you know, translate in a particular direction. And so that's the problem with this inclinometer not working. Now you can't get that initial condition and figure out, you know, how to initialize the algorithm so that it can run its navigation software correctly because, it can, because again, it has to do this autonomously because it's sitting all the way over on Mars and takes these flights that are only like, you know, a minute or so in length. 
happily, the team was prepared for this. They had come up with, uh, they realized that the IMU's accelerometers, right? An IMU is going to have accelerometers on board as part of it being able to measure your uh, where you are inertially in inertial space. And so uh, basically a software patch is being uploaded to Ingenuity to essentially insert a small little code snippet that would take uh, typically where the inclinometer's input would come in, uh, but instead just outputs its own based on what the uh, the gyros on or the uh, accelerometers on the IMU are telling it. And so it's a little less accurate, but it's good enough uh, for government work, I guess. Um, you just need to basically uh, get off the ground uh, safely and then let the, uh, uh, you know, once you kind of clear anything in your immediate environment, um, then you can use the IMUs to get level flight and do what you want to do. That's where they are now. Uh, hope, hoping to get the uh, software uploaded over the next few SALs. And then flight number 29, which is going to actually bring Ingenuity closer to uh, Perseverance. Because Perseverance is no longer sprinting across the, <laughs> the surface in Yezero Crater. It's now doing science again, so it's moving more slowly. But this next flight, they definitely want to make sure that uh, Ingenuity stays within communications range. Especially after the hiccup they had uh, communication-wise uh, a few weeks ago, I believe that was. So, Dennis, you linked... Uh a really lovely PDF uh, in the show notes. Uh, it's oh, called that's Flight... what I thought of you. When I... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Flight Control System for NASA's Mars Helicopter. Uh, the lead author is Harvard Fear Grip. And it, it's, it's really lovely. It has uh, all of their hardware um, listed out. So I just went and looked up all of their control hardware uh, on DigiKey, <laughs> just because mm-hmm. uh, that's the thing you can do. And it's fun because pretty much everything that they have on board is discontinued or uh, otherwise unavailable on DigiKey. But that makes sense because they built this so long ago that the the COTS products back then were totally different than the ones you can get now. But one of the things that really caught my eye that I, I like is a description of the flight control concept of operations section four in the, in the PDF. And it describes how they actually do their navigation or, or how they do their, their flight operations. And they basically say, Testing in relevant environments for Mars is really tough. So we kept everything as simple as possible um, because they, they don't want to do anything on Mars that they can't test here on Earth. So each flight begins with a takeoff, uh, followed by a vertical climb at a velocity of one meter per second uh, up to the flight altitude. And you, you mentioned that, Dennis, how they, uh, they fly for five centimeters of that with, uh, with no control they basically set set the throttle and don't touch anything else yeah they i think they have some kind of like course uh rotational control but yeah they, they're not actually okay. putting in their navigation work <laughs> right and um not only do they not do their full sixth off control and not only do they ignore right they they ignore their accelerometer or something um they also ignore input from their camera for that time and then once they get up to their flight altitude, they then slew over. So they, they go through uh, a series of steps to get to each waypoint that they've set. Um, so they do um, position, translation, heading, dwell time and dwell heading all define a waypoint. Um, so the vehicle um, rotate uh, does a, an altitude adjustment to the height of the waypoint. 
assuming it's different than the defined flight altitude. Um, then it slews to the translation heading, only doing a yaw rotation, not doing any other, any other control changes. Then they translate straight out to the waypoint. So just, uh, X and Y control. Then when they get to the waypoint, the vehicle comes to a stop and then it slews to its dwell heading and sits and waits for the amount of time that's specified. And then they repeat those steps to get to the, to the next waypoint. Altitude, translation heading, translation, uh, dwell heading, dwell. And then once they get to the last waypoint, then they descend at a speed of one meter per second until they reach the ground at which point they shut everything down and they also uh, ignore the cameras right before they land. So there was a really nice GIF um, that showed their highest speed flight to date. And I believe that I believe I put the GIF in the episode notes for the last episode. So that would have been uh 362. It, it cuts out at the beginning and end. Uh, you don't get to see the, the initial takeoff and the final landing because the camera is shut off during that time. It's pretty cool. It, it, I like those little tiny details that once you know them, you can't stop seeing them. You know. All right. So breaking madness, um, as Dennis puts it, uh, we just had, uh, we just watched the launch of the Astra. What's the What's the name of the mission? Uh, Tropics, Tropics One. One. Tropics One. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they um, are experiencing some second stage issues. We don't know what they are because this just happened, but it looked to be kind of spinning somewhat wildly. Like, uh, yeah, something went wrong here. And Ben, I think you said you think it was a problem with the propellant feed, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, it, it's always tough to say, but. Um, you know, it's, this is after fairing separation and first or second stage separation. The second stage engine had been running for a good couple of minutes and looked fine. And then suddenly, instead of having almost no, uh, visible exhaust coming out of the engine, a, a big white cloud appeared. Um, you can see the, uh, engine bell that the thrust vector control kicks it over to the side a little bit. Um, and then the vehicle starts rotating. There's a little bit of a flicker in the downlink video, but, uh, it, it starts tumbling. I'm, I'm pretty confident saying, cause you know, you see a little bit of flicker, then you see earth instead of the limb of the earth centered in the frame. Mm -hmm. So yeah, my, my guess is that because you get that white puff is that one of the propellants wasn't feeding into the engine properly. And what you're seeing there is smoke from incomplete combustion. We'll see. Hopefully we'll find out more information. And I think another thing that's going to be interesting, not only to see the, the failure analysis, but also to see how this impacts the rest of the tropics launches. Um, these were supposed to be very high cadence uh, launches. And I think it's really going to come down to how confident they are in their diagnosis. If they think that they know exactly what it was and they can fix it, they're probably going to run with the rest of the tropics launches with not a lot of delay. But if there's uncertainty, they very well could wind up delaying the rest of the tropics missions until the end of the year or later. Who knows? But uh, Astra, we love you. We're impressed by you. We love the fact that this is a failure and you're okay with that. <laughs> fail early, fail often is strong uh, with Astra. So good luck, guys. Um, it, it's going to be a, a rough weekend or I guess a rough week 
uh, for everybody over there, but they're they're going to get this sorted out. Yeah. So wasn't it? I think it was after that had some issues with propellant, well, not propellant loading, but just uh, the exact quantity that they needed. Right? It was not something that they kind of had to work out. Or am I thinking of some? Oh, other they company? didn't. They didn't reach. Yeah, they didn't reach orbit on one of their original test flights mm-hmm. um, because they, yeah, they basically ran out of propellant before they got there. So I wonder yeah, if they just so ran out. An <laughs> yeah. I I can't imagine that they addressed yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they addressed it. Plus, I mean, if it fails at seven minutes and twenty two seconds. That's a big gap. That's not like a small. Yeah, they were so. yeah. well before Seco. Yeah. 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 So let's do three short and sweets. And Ben, what's the first? All right, Korean startup targets launch from Brazil later this year. South Korean small launch vehicle company InnoSpace has unveiled the nation's first commercial rocket, the Hanbit TLV. The vehicle has recently performed interface, integrity, and systems compatibility tests with its portable platform called the Coalesced Launch System. A test of its hybrid engine first stage is planned later this year from Brazil's El Contra Launch Space Center and will see the rocket propel a 9.2-ton projectile to verify its performance. The company's ultimate goal is to carry payloads to sun-synchronous orbit with their rockets. Sorry, that one, uh, a Korean startup launching from Brazil with a hybrid first stage. Yeah. I I needed to put that in there. It's juicy. Yeah, Yeah. it's good. Next up, NASA to launch from Australia. NASA is planning to launch three suborbital sounding rockets from a commercial spaceport in northern Australia, the Arnheim Space Center. While NASA has launched rockets from Woomera in South Australia since 1995, this will be the first time the agency has used a commercial spaceport outside of the U.S. The missions will focus on astrophysics and include a pair of Black Grant 9 rockets. The Launchpad's owner, Equatorial Launch Australia, is in discussions with nine rocket companies and aspires for more than 50 launches annually in the coming years. And the next JWST struck by micrometeoroids. The James Webb Space Telescope recently suffered a micrometeoroid impact on the C3 segment of its primary mirror. The telescope had already registered four previous impacts, which were within the predicted time frame and magnitude of degradation for the mirror. However, this more recent impact was larger than what was modeled by mission personnel. Nevertheless, NASA officials are confident that the telescope will continue to perform adequately. Engineers will be able to adjust the 18 mirror segment to compensate for the blemish as degradation was expected and taken into account during JWST's mission design. All right, so this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have no winners because the clue was exceptionally difficult. Uh, the, the clue was C-3PO is not a no-go. So that's like a double negative right there. Yeah. <laughs> not not only is a, is a clue hard, but this is a very obscure spaceflight event. Yeah, and what was that event? Well, well, first let me let me read you Uncle Willie's guess because this is uh very very reasonable, and not only that, uh, the exact day <laughs> that I have down. Uh, so Uncle Willie guessed uh, Discover twenty five, aka Corona nine zero one seven, aka Corona C five. AKA 1961 014A, AKA 1961XI1, AKA S00108, uh, was launched on the 16th of June, 1961. It was a KH2 type satellite, AKA C prime, thus the C3PO reference. It took pictures and then released, ejected the film canister slash reentry vehicle on 18th of June, 1961, but the mid air catch 
failed, thus part of the no-go. The plane that attempted the catch was a Fairchild uh, C-119J, another C. The camera was built by Fairchild Camera Company, two more Cs. And the canister was retrieved from the water and developed images had streaks on them, another no-go. So like this is like full-on numerology uh, paranoia trying to come up with uh, an answer for for my uh, for my this week in space flight history event. Great job, Uncle Willie. That's even good. though it's wrong, it's fantastic. Exactly. All right. This week in space flight history is the 16th of June, 1961, and it was the final Fleming Committee report being submitted. So let me first locate us in time. Uh, the Mercury flights ran from May of 1961 to May of 1963. Okay, so we're June 1961. In 1961, NASA was multitasking like crazy, preparing for the moonshot. Um, at this point in, uh, in, in the moon program, uh, Earth orbit rendezvous and direct ascent were still the main contenders for the way we were going to get to the moon. And, you know, they would still be the main contenders until the beginning of 1962. Earth orbit rendezvous, uh, would require somewhere between six to 10 launches, depending on the mass of the lander. Uh, at this point, that wasn't frozen. In fact, it wasn't well characterized at all. Um, in reality, they wound up undershooting their early 1961 estimates, uh, uh, by a, a reasonable amount when we're talking about, you know, reducing mass. Earth orbit rendezvous, by the way, um, is the idea of doing multiple launches up to Earth orbit to build and fuel a vehicle, which will then go all the way to the moon surface and back. Um, even if it's shedding stages along the way, it's, you know... Uh, it's going from Earth orbit all the way to the moon surface. Direct ascent is the idea of shedding stages along the way, but what you launch from Earth, everything goes to the moon uh, or to, to the lunar surface, and you do it all in one launch. Um, lunar orbit rendezvous is the way that Apollo ended up working. You do a single launch, um, but you leave a component in orbit. Um, and then go down to the surface and rendezvous in, in lunar orbit with your return vehicle and then leave your lander there uh, on the moon uh, or in, in lunar orbit and then shortly thereafter to crash into the moon. So at this point, NASA is still thinking in terms of sustained lunar presence. Um, remember, we were just spending huge amounts of money to get to the moon and uh, everybody sort of got used to the level of spending <laughs> that Congress was willing to put up with. So Kula, the designer of the Saturn one looked at the idea of doing earth orbit rendezvous and was kind of warning NASA that they could be looking at a uh, hundred launches every year. Um, you know, if you're doing 10 launches per mission and you're trying to do 10 missions in a year, like, yeah, that, that adds up really quickly. I thought it was really interesting. The, the way that that math works out is if you're going to do a hundred annual launches, uh, for EOR, um, you wind up consuming 3% of the U.S. GDP on space. Like, really, that's totally acceptable to me. Uh, 3% <laughs> of the GDP going towards, or, you know, the, the amount that we spend on space being equal to 3% of the GDP. That's, that's totally fine. That's nothing, but you know, in reality, that's uh, vastly more than we're willing to spend. When you look at the breakdown, yeah, it's very uneven. <laughs> yeah. So the the moon rocket 
uh, was going to be the biggest thing that anybody had ever launched. Um, NASA wasn't even sure where to launch it from. And my, my two main sources are from the, the NASA history project. And they mentioned a couple of alternatives that were really amusing to me. Um, they were considering, uh, offshore platforms that they, they could build a platform to launch it with. Um, and they were also considering building artificial islands. Um, those are two of the more crazy things. The other alternative was Cumberland Island in Georgia. Um, it's right over the border, uh, from Florida and it basically is, is a, a second Cape Canaveral. So if Cumberland Island was an option, um, why wasn't the Cape? Well, Cape was an option. I think it was the primary location that everybody uh, with any amount of grounding and reality uh, had in mind. But you know all of those disused launch facilities on Cape Canaveral? And like every once in a while you hear about a, a company um, leasing out one for a, a rocket that may or may not ever get launched. Um, I guess Astro would be a good example of, of one actually getting launched, but, um, yeah, all of those launch facilities, uh, were not at that time disused. The, the place was just cram packed. The U S air force base, uh, at the Cape, um, Cocoa beach, Merritt Island. Like it's just, the place is filthy with launch pads and they had such a, a large scale launch operation in mind that n this really just was too crowded, uh, for a lot of people. Now, Russia at this point had just demonstrated, uh, the use of a mobile launch platform. By April 1961, NASA was deep into studies, uh, looking at their own version of a mobile launch platform. And, and that's, starts to sound really solid, right? You're like, oh, great, mobile launch platform. We know what that is. It's still in use today. But with all of this going on, you have to keep in mind that what the moon rocket would actually be was still up in the air. Um, I said that NASA was doing a lot of multitasking at this point, and their multitasking was extremely vertical. Uh, in my notes, I wrote, plan all the steps all the time. We're just, we're working on everything all at once. Um, so what are the, what are the vehicle options? And I promise we're going to get to the Fleming committee in a second here. The, the big options that were being looked at, uh, were all coming from different parts of the organization, the space task group, the people in charge of Mercury, uh, as well as the headquarters office of launch vehicle programs wanted, they both wanted to do direct ascent and to do direct ascent, they were going to have to use uh, a vehicle called Nova. And that's part of the clue. Uh, Marshall Space Flight Center wanted to do Earth orbit rendezvous and they wanted to use a bunch of Saturn C3s, uh, to, to build their vehicle in orbit. That's the second part of the clue. Now, direct ascent would take two years longer than, uh, than Earth orbit rendezvous. It, assuming that you go with the predicted timeline of Earth orbit rendezvous, uh, getting us to the moon in 1968 or 1969. Granted, we did get to the moon in 1969, but do you really think that we would have been capable of doing up to 10 launches, uh, in rapid succession right before, uh, an actual moon landing and doing all those rendezvous and still been able to potentially beat or to at least stay on the same uh, timeline as lunar orbit rendezvous, which we ended up doing. I, I don't think so. I think 
uh, saying that direct ascent would have taken two years longer than Earth orbit rendezvous is uh, a highly optimistic prediction. And I think Earth orbit rendezvous happening in 1968 or 1969 is an even more dramatic, uh, optimistic viewpoint. Uh, of course, this whole time, Langley is saying, hey, no, we want to do lunar orbit rendezvous. And uh, Langley got their way. And ultimately, Langley required us to build the Saturn V as opposed to the Saturn C3. So what was the Saturn C3? It, it looks shockingly like a Saturn V, right? I mean, it's it's a Saturn C. We, we flew Saturn Cs. Uh, the Saturn C3 variant uh, would have had two F1 engines on its first stage, which was called the S, uh, S1B2. Uh, and that's S I B two, two, two different numerical systems in there. Um, so they could either fly two F1 engines as opposed to the five F1 engines on Saturn five, or they potentially could have flown three solid rocket engines. Now these solid rocket engines were never designed and never named, but they were looking at something like 4.5 million pounds of force coming out of these guys. Uh, the Saturn C3 second stage was called the S2C3, and it would have had four J2 engines. Um, the third stage would have been called the S4, and it would have had six RL10 engines. The Saturn C3 was planned to have uh, a capacity of 45,000 kilograms to low Earth orbit, um, or uh, potentially 18,000 kilograms to translunar injection. The TLI spec is actually kind of important. While Saturn C3 probably never would have gone to do a lunar landing, uh, it likely would have been used to do a lunar flyby. And it also probably would have been used to do um, interplanetary science missions, which is pretty neat, given that, you know, Saturn V never did that. I just thought it's a nice connection that the, the S4... Uh, third engine on the Saturn C3, right? We know the S4Bs that went on Saturn Vs, but we the S4 did fly on David's uh, cluster thruster, right? The Saturn oh. One. It was the second stage on the yeah. Saturn One, so that yeah, one actually yeah, yeah. did, you know, get launched. <laughs> and I, I I presume that Saturn Four has heritage reaching into Saturn S4B, which is my favorite rocket stage of all time, uh, <laughs> built in Sacramento. Uh, a really, a really beautiful upper stage. It's got, you know, it's the only part of the Saturn V that makes it to orbit and it's got the big, like, alligator jaw style fairings. It's a lovely, lovely <laughs> rocket stage. Okay. So that's the Saturn C3. The Nova, um, when we were talking about this last week, I was the only one familiar with the Nova and I, I still don't understand how that's the case because this thing, is a behemoth and it's absolutely insane and i'm very glad that it never was built uh, the nova rocket would have had eight f1 engines right as opposed to the five <laughs> on saturn five eight of these things um, it's not well fleshed out because, you know, it was always a concept and it never, um, really got too much design put into it. But, uh, at liftoff, it would have had between 44 million newtons to 88 million newtons worth of thrust. So that's 10 to 20 million pounds of thrust. Um, the thing is straight out of Kerbal Space Program. Uh, Dennis has got a good photo in Discord and looking at it, how many different diameters are there? One, two, three, four, before you get up to the, <laughs> before you mm. get all the way up to the, um, 
the Apollo CSM. It's the, the thing's just crazy. It's, it's not, it's not a good rocket that you, you really want to get behind, uh, in, in contrast to the Saturn V, which is beautiful and wonderful. Um, the NASA history series that I, I'm mainly drawing from here, uh, has a, a wonderful note, uh, that the Nova never advanced beyond the conceptual stage, but they are clear to point out that that's also true of C2 and C3, <laughs> kind of, uh, being even in how well we're pointing out that these are all conceptual rockets. Okay, so the Fleming Committee. The Fleming Committee was an ad hoc committee chaired by William Fleming of the Office of Space, Space Flight Programs, and it was a six-week study of lunar landing requirements. And I don't know if this was in their charter or if they just decided to go ahead and do it, but they also developed um, a basic flight program. So the Fleming Committee uh, concluded that direct ascent was the most feasible. Um, and here's, here's how they planned this out. They wanted to do crew orbital flights on a Saturn C1 in 1964 and then advance up to circumlunar flights in late 1965. And yes, that's flights plural. And then to do lunar landings using the Nova starting in 1967. Talk about ambitious. This is a, a, an incredible launch cadence that they were looking for. They wanted to have 14 C1 flights and 24 C3 flights. Um, th this drastically outstrips all of Apollo or all of uh, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. We we never got up to this kind of launch cadence. So the idea of a mobile launch platform was already in the works um, when the Fleming Committee got to work and. A mobile launch platform only made financial sense if you could launch 15 times a year, is is what NASA concluded at that point. Obviously, they ended up building it without doing 15 launches a year. The Fleming report said that 13 launches a year was the absolute maximum that they anticipated actually scheduling uh, on the way to the moon. But they later clarified that these... <laughs> These 14 C1 flights and 24 C3 flights, uh, launching at fastest 13 per year was not all of the launches that they wanted to see coming out of the Cape. They said that they would be adding additional or that additional flights would be done on top of this schedule, um, to low earth orbit, uh, potentially a space station that we would have, uh, at the same time as, as our moon missions. Uh, and then they also saw interplanetary missions, uh, happening during this time. And, uh, all, all of this presumably would bump them up above, uh, the 15 launches a year break even point for building a mobile launch platform. Um, so the Fleming report or the, the Fleming commission issued a number of reports and, and their final report is, is what I pegged for this week in spaceflight history. And basically uh, the final report said, Hey, we need to get working on a launch complex. This is a crucial item on the way to the moon. We need to get it sorted ASAP. And they said that they needed to get a contractor selected right away to start designing and building uh, a launch facility. All of my preamble here, I hope, is giving you the same impression that I have, which is, well, wait, you don't know where it's going. You don't know what's launching on it. 
uh, this is kind of a crazy thing to be saying right now. You're really putting the cart before the horse. And indeed, the launch facilities team basically had a mental breakdown at this point. Um, there's a, an anecdote um, in, <laughs> in, the, in the NASA history project. They were a little obsessed with, uh, with beauty contests, but there, there's this anecdote of, of an engineer getting home, uh, during the Miss Universe final being aired, and he was asleep before the end of the program, and his wife was like, holy crap, this dude is exhausted if he's falling asleep during Miss Universe. The, uh, <laughs> the NASA History Project also has a sentence that says that the launch facilities team, uh, had a, a task before them that was basically the same as, quote, outfitting a beauty queen a month before she's selected uh just misogyny up and down <laughs> the list but um c- could you imagine um like when we talk about nasa employees you know working extra hours and and just working their their fingers to the bone we're mostly thinking of the astronaut corps and the flight dynamics team but like that's all after we had a launch facility built uh the the mm-hmm. launch folks were were tearing their hair out long before that. Um, immediately after the Fleming committee disbanded, I guess, or concluded, um, a joint NASA U.S. Air Force study was started. Um, this is known as the Debus Davis study. Um, it's named after, uh, Kurt Debus, um, a, a, a German rocket engineer and Major General Leighton Davis of the USAF uh, Missile Test Center. And I, I want to extend the This Week in Space Flight History forward a little bit into the Debus Davis study, because out of the Debus Davis study came Launch Complex 39, uh, now 39A and 39B. But if you look at what the Debus Davis study put out, you see a, a modern LC 39. It's really kind of crazy. It has the four distinguishing features that we really take for granted today. And if you read the the NASA history article, it's weird to explicitly list these because we're like, yeah, that's that's how we do launch. Um, but th- this was brand new back then. So the four main features that they point out are an environmentally controlled VAB for assembly and checkout. Um, the ability to transfer to the launch pad for the final checkout fueling and launch, a remote launch control center, and automation of vehicle checkout and launch. And I, I really love how reading this, I've tried to give you the, the same feeling that I got when I was reading it as I've been kind of relaying this to you. But reading this, I, I got this crazy chaotic feeling at the very beginning where nothing made sense, right? We're talking about, you know, 10, uh, up to 10, uh, tiny Saturn rockets launching to orbit over and over and over before we go to the moon. Or we're talking about a single gigantic vehicle, the, the Nova. We don't know where we're going to launch from. We don't know how we're getting there, but we're going to the moon. Gosh, darn it. (laughs) And and so we kind of, see from this cloud, this fog of chaos rising, the architecture that we're familiar with and are still using today. And you kind of go from uncertainty to certainty, even if they didn't have quite as much certainty as we do uh, looking back on it, it. It's nice to see, you know, a plan really come together, kind of see this coalescence of what it takes to get to the moon. Yeah, no, I uh, I just looked up and I, I know that we had grabbed a lot of uh, former Nazi scientists as part of our early spaceflight program. 
But uh, from what I'm seeing, Kurt Debus, it looks like, was just a straight-up member of the uh, the SS, which is the uh, Schutzstaffel, you know, the infamous paramilitary under Hitler. Yeah, not great. No. <laughs> as much as we love, you know, Apollo and, and early uh, U.S. spaceflight, early NASA human spaceflight, we have to remember that it is tainted. Just, it's not great. Well, so, okay, yeah, so on that dour note, um, I was just <laughs> going to point out that one, the one cool thing is that um, this also gives us an idea of, because I had never thought about this, what it was like in the early days about, like we talk a lot about having to learn the basics of flying rockets, but also building launch pads. Like, because the stuff you listed, it, to me, seems like you said, just yeah. like a foregone conclusion. But right. I guess at the time, they didn't realize, oh, we, we need like a VAB. Like, of course you would have one, but I guess maybe not, you know. Um, there's just like the whole logistics of launching a, a rocket, transporting it and fueling it and blah, blah, blah. Like, that was all stuff that they had to figure out. It's kind of neat to see the evolution of that process. Um, and I had never thought about launch pads actually at all <laughs> and how those came to be. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think I'd ever looked into it this deep launch pads in mm. particular. Well, so thank you, Ben. That was a awesome history into something that, uh, we don't really hear about all that often. And also what really strikes me is just, you know, when people were doing it the first time, right. <laughs> Trying to figure mm. this out the very first time, that's really kind of crazy to see how that. Uh, ends up how they approach it and how they end up making it work. So, David, next week is the 21st to the 27th of June. Do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. And the clue is in 1982, enjoy the extra legroom while it lasts. So I hope that clue is easier for you listeners out there. I think it's a great clue. I think someone will get it. Right. So if you think you know what the answer to that clue is, uh, you can send us an email or tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck. Good luck. Moving right along to upcoming spaceflight events, we got six of them this week. Uh, lots of stuff going on. Uh, what's the first thing, Dennis? Well, the first thing on June 15th, we have uh, NURI's launch. And so NURI, also known as uh, KSLV-2, or the Korean Space Launch Vehicle 2, is the first uh, fully indigenously built rocket from uh, South Korea. And uh, it had launched once before uh, last year. Um, and unfortunately, the third stage shut down a little early. And so while it reached Apogee, it did not drop its payload to orbit. And so, um, you know, it's test payload. And so in any event, this is flight test two for the rocket. And so again, that's June 15th with a window from 0600 to 0800 UTC. And it'll be launching out of Naro Space Center in South Korea at pad LC2. All right. Next up is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink group 419 um nasa spaceflight forums are guessing that this is 53 satellites um i don't know if uh if uh, spacex has been publishing the numbers so don't don't come for me if it's not 53 um that's going to be launching on friday june 17th at 1450 hours utc out of launch complex 39a which i hope you have a little bit of a better understanding of <laughs> <laughs> and then the next day on June 18th, we have another Falcon 9 launch, and that is launching Sarah 1. Um, so Sarah 1 is a radar remote sensing satellite for the German military. It is the first of three synthetic aperture radar satellites for the German military and built by Airbus. Okay. So this is launching from Vandenberg, and it looks like the first stage will be returning to a landing zone, landing zone 4 at Vandenberg. So that's kind of cool. I don't know. Uh, when was the last time that was done from the West Coast? Like I don't a know. return booster? I can't. It's been a long time, I think. I think it's been at least once, but 
not very often. Liftoff time is at 13.50 UTC or 9.50 on the East Coast or 6.50 on the West Coast. That's launching from Space Launch Complex 4E from Vandenberg Space Force Base in California with a booster coming back. So check that one out. And next, on June 19th, we've got yet another Falcon 9. And this one, though, is going to be taking Global Star 2 FM-15 as well as some undisclosed payloads. So this evidently is a classified launch for the U.S. government. This, according to some reports, by Spaceflight Now was a spare satellite for Global Star's data relay and messaging constellation um, and was previously undisclosed on SpaceX's schedule. So kind of jumping uh, out at us, uh, or, or springing up on us. And so in any event, the launch again is June 19th with an instantaneous launch at 0430 UTC flying out of the Cape at Slick 40. Okay, this may or may not be happening, um, but SLS's wet dress rehearsal is currently no uh, scheduled for no earlier than June 19th. Um, this is coming off of NASA.gov slash launch schedule. I didn't see it listed in their blogs or anything, so... Yeah, who who knows if it if it's actually going to be uh going off this week but yeah the possibility exists so keep an eye out for that uh on the 19th finally we have on june 22nd uh the launch of uh an arian 5 and that is with the mesat 3d and gsat 24 so these are communication satellites built again by airbus so lots of airbus stuff going up this week mm-hmm. um and they're outfitted with c band ku band and ka band payloads for direct-to-home TV broadcasting and internet services overseas as well and some other parts of the world. That is a launch window of 2103 through 2243 UTC. And the launch site is from ELA3 in Kourou, French Guiana. So that's another cool one to check out. So lots of uh, lots of Airbus stuff this week. <laughs> All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, let's do over the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Mike, the Greek, Kenton, Stanley Foyou, Sty Garfield, Deathkin, Gopal, Cy Kyle, Leon Running Man, Colin Chubby, Delta V, and BT for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, where Orbital podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.